Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, February 23rd. It is 10.30 a.m., and it is time for Bible study. I don't know where you might be today, but uh, in North Texas, it is a cold, icy day. It is a good day to be inside with a warm drink, and our Bible's open to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we are on our third week of Revelation chapter 2. We are taking our time specifically through these letters to the seven churches. So we are right now in the middle of the seven letters to the seven churches. And uh, this is great stuff. This is great stuff. The Bible is full of theology and it's full of stuff that sometimes we don't understand very well. And then we have these seven letters to the seven churches, which is it's a treasure trove of practical direction for the church. The church can read this and they can see exactly what Jesus wants them to do and be and the things that Jesus does not like to see. And so it's good for every church to read through this uh, and to uh, to take this advice, to take this direction. And so uh, good morning to those who are joining us live and for those who are listening later. We're glad you're taking the time to to study uh, Revelation with us. So let's jump right in. We are at the last section of Revelation chapter 2, and we start at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So we'll stop right there. Thyatira, the smallest town, smallest church, uh, you you could even say the least important of the seven churches. Uh, It was... There's not really any record of any kind of church persecution there. Uh, it's just a small town. But but in Acts 16, we are uh, we're told about someone named Lydia of Thyatira, who was a seller of purple cloth. Purple cloth was uh, cloth for royalty, so it was an expensive cloth. So it could be that it was a small town uh, that had some wealth to it. Uh, and so Jesus says, uh, these are the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, And so in Jewish thought, if you claim to be the son of something or a child of something, it meant that you had the nature of that thing. So for Jesus to say that he is the son of God, he is introducing himself to the church there by claiming his deity, by claiming his connection to God, Uh, which is interesting when you read through some of the things Jesus said, like Matthew 23, 5, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert. And you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, and he calls them hypocrites. And he says that they are children of hell. And then the ones who you convert are twice as much the children of hell as you. And so there is a deep connection to what Jesus is saying. He's not using this metaphorically or allegorically or whatever the right word is. He's saying that you are a spawn of Satan, right? John the Baptist said, you are brood of vipers, right? And so when you say that you belong to something, you are a child or a a son or a daughter of something, basically what you're saying is that you have the same nature of that thing. You have the same nature of that thing. It is why when we get to the Nicene Creed, we talk about Jesus being begotten, not made. Jesus is the Son of God in a way that is different than we are children of God. We are adopted. Uh, we are adopted, and so we, we can claim that we are children of God, but not in the same way Jesus can. 
Jesus is, has the same nature of God. We, we do not have the nature of God. We have the image of God, which is different. And then it says his eyes of fire and feet of burnished bronze. So we have eyes of fire, eyes of judgment, and, and bronze uh, is going, kind of going back to what we talked about in one of the earlier episodes. Uh, this immovable strength, the, the, the strength of, of the mountains type of thing, uh, the, the, Im, um, immort- the immortal, the eternal strength of bronze, the, the most powerful, strongest metal of the time. Okay, uh, verse 19. I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know your last works are greater than the first. What a great compliment. If you are a church, there is nothing more than you want to hear than verse 19. What a great thing to be said about you. I know your works. I've watched you. And I know that you are a church that loves. I know that you are a church that has faith. I know that you know how to serve one another. And I know that you know patient endurance. You're willing to wait patiently. And not only, not only do you have these things, your works now are greater than they were in the beginning. You're growing. You're growing in love. You're growing in faith. You're growing in service to others. You're growing in patient endurance. What a great thing to be said about your church, right? Especially from Jesus. Like if there's, if there's one person your church should be trying to impress, it's Jesus. And if Jesus is impressed, he's going to say things like this. I know that you have love and faith and service and patient endurance. And oh, by the way, you're getting better at all of them. Like, yes, that's great. Thank you. I mean, if, if as a leader of a church, that's what I would like my church to be known for. That's what I would like abiding grace to be known for. I mean, we, we, I mean, what, what better could be said about you? What else would you want to be known for than love and faith and service and patient endurance. What a beautiful compliment to receive. Verse 19, oh, Jesus, that is so kind of you. Thank you so much. Oh, but that's not the end of the chapter, (laughs) right? We have verse 20. We have verse 20. Again, last week we did this. Jesus said something nice and then said, but, but, you know, someone once said uh, to ignore everything said before the but, right? When Jesus is saying that, I don't, I think we can take, you know, we, we can take the compliment, but verse 20, but I have this against you, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication, to eat food sacrificed to idols. So, Despite all the good things you're doing, you have one thing wrong. One thing big time wrong. You have Jezebel in your community. A woman who Jesus calls Jezebel. That doesn't actually mean that it has to be her name, her literal name. Her name she could be anything. But uh, there is a Old Testament story in First and Second Kings about a woman named Jezebel who was a, a self-appointed prophetess. And, and so throughout Scripture and throughout the history of the church, people have given that title to women. They would refer to them as a Jezebel. 
and and rightly or wrongly so throughout all of history that has been done and uh, and so when Jesus says you have Jezebel among you it may mean that her name is actually Jezebel or it may mean that her name is something else and Jesus is referring to her as a Jezebel in the same way that that you wouldn't you wouldn't want someone to refer to you today as a Judas or a Hitler or a Napoleon which you know is often said but doesn't have the same as negative connotations as the other two. It, but, but it's a strong thing. It's a strong thing to call a woman Jezebel. It's a strong thing to call somebody a Hitler. You know, you don't want that said about you, and you really shouldn't be saying that about anyone else, quite frankly. But, but um, okay, so you have a Jezebel among you, you have, and she is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and eat foods sacrificed to idols. So it's not just that she did wrong. It's not that she just did, that she did wrong, but she led others to do wrong. So they allowed her to have a place of authority or a place within the community where she had the authority to lead others, and she was leading others to do wrong, and that's the problem that Jesus had with them. So for her, let's just one minute. Jesus said, Mark 9:42, Jesus said, "Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around, hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea. It would be better for that person if they were dead than for someone to lead God's people astray, to lead them to do wrong. So now let's talk about the church. What? So the, the church has done great things, right? Verse 19, you're great at love, faith, service, and patient endurance. But I have this against you, that woman Jezebel, you tolerate that woman. That's what verse 20 says. You tolerate that woman that self, uh, who calls herself a prophet and is leading others astray. So the sin of the church was that they allowed slash tolerated this corruption. They allowed or tolerated this woman to lead others astray. They didn't want to say the difficult thing that needed to be said. They didn't want to do the difficult thing that needed to be done. And we see this throughout all of church history, where the church has been guilty of not holding leaders accountable, not saying to people, hey, you can't be a leader in the church. I'm sorry, you just, you're leading others astray and we can't have that. Or you can't be a leader of the church because of the ways in which you are causing harm to others, right? The ways in which you are taking advantage of your position in ways for your own personal gratification, for your own personal uh, enrichment, for your own personal perversions. Throughout all of history, the church has had leaders do bad things, really bad things, and the church has not held those leaders accountable. They've moved them to other churches, They've given them a fresh start, thinking a new start, things might change. Uh, but the church needs to hold it, and today we are much better at it, I would, I would hope. Uh, I would say we are much better at it than we were, but we're not perfect, and we need to get better at it, right? But it's important that, it's important that we hold our leaders accountable, especially those who would lead others astray, right? Uh, uh, every leader is going to make mistakes. I am a sinner. I am a sinful person. Uh, uh, but it is my goal to never lead anyone else ever astray, right? I, I, I am aware of my sinfulness. I, am, I can acknowledge my sinfulness, and I can, I can say to my daughter, oh, you should never say what I just said, 
right? Or I can say, you know, that I'm, I'm not perfect. Uh, and I never want to lead someone astray, make them think that the wrong thing is the right thing. Uh, so an important, important distinction uh, here that Jesus is making and an important point that he's making that you have someone among you who you are tolerating who should not be allowed to lead. Do not let her lead anymore, period. Okay, let's move on to verses 21 and 23. Now, a little bit more about Jezebel. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Because I'm throwing her on a bed, or I'm sorry, beware, I'm throwing her on a bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I'm throwing them into great distress unless they repent of their doings. That was 21 and 23. She refuses to repent. Beware, I'm throwing her on a bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I'm throwing into great distress unless they repent of what they're doing. Verse 23. Do not like this one. Do not like how this starts. Here we go. And I will strike her children dead. What? (laughs) And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your work deserves. Okay. So Jesus' great accusation here is that there's a Jezebel, and she did not repent. I gave her time to repent, but she refused. Verse 21. Uh, She rejected the suggestion, the advice, the work of the Holy Spirit, calling her to repentance. And so there's a, a point here that I think uh, is we could probably spend an hour talking about. God calls us to repentance. God shows us the error of our ways uh, and gives us time to change. But from what we see here, it's not an unlimited time. God says, that's enough. I've had enough. I'm done. I am going to throw her on a bed. Throw her on a bed. What does that mean? Throw her on a bed and those who commit adultery with her. Most scholars say what this means is a sick bed, meaning that she was going to get sick. She was going to be chastised with an illness. She was going to be sick and she wasn't going to be able to get out of bed. And we think, well, is that something God does? Does, does God give somebody an illness so that they stay in bed as a way of chastising them, as a way of causing them to repent? First uh, Corinthians 11.30 kind of alludes to the same thing, that you guys are you guys are sick because of and it's your own fault, right? Uh, do we believe this is true today? Do we believe that people are sick today because of of sin? Do we believe people are sick today because of sin? I don't. But let's get let's let's ask the next question. Why do we think Jesus is doing this? Why is Jesus doing this? And I hope this will kind of alleviate some of that. Do we think this is true today? Uh, First off, Jesus did this so that she would repent. The, the goal here is that she would repent, that she would stop doing this, uh, that those in the community who were doing this would stop. They wouldn't listen to Jesus calling them to repentance, so maybe they will now, right? This is a big theme throughout the first century. Throughout the first century of, of, of Christianity, people believed that sickness and sin were related, that people were sick because they were sinful, right? John chapter 9, the Gospel of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? How could he, first off, how could it have been his sin if he was born blind? Did he sin in the womb? Uh, verse 3. Neither, Jesus said, this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. That 
Sickness and sin were related. People would wonder, is your sickness caused by your sin or the sins of your parents? This was a, as we've gone through history and we found, as we've grown in understanding of science and medicine, we've come to realize that maybe sickness isn't related to sin, right? And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? What do we do with Jesus saying, I'm going to strike her children dead? Um, I just hope that didn't happen. I, I don't know. Maybe it's one of those things that you say is like, you know, a parent or so like, uh, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. You know, maybe it's something like that, but, uh, I, we have no, we have no reason to believe that anything happened to her children. And what's important to say is that this here is not Jesus saying that this Jezebel, this woman, whoever, whatever, whatever her name is, is going to hell. It's not saying that she's damned to hell. It's saying that Jesus is trying to get her to repent. That's what it's saying. Trying to get so that there can be restoration so that she can understand uh, what it is that God would have her do and who God would have her be as a leader. So also, why is Jesus doing this? Well, Jesus is making an example to the other churches. Uh, it says, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Um, and, and then he says, uh, let me get back. Uh, all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. And so as a church, you, you hear this lesson about this Jezebel, and you think, well, if someone in here, if God is calling us to repent, we need to repent. And if, and if we're not being called to repent, we shouldn't be doing fornication and food sacrifice to idols and all that stuff. Um, and so there's an example here of the power of Jesus, the, what Jesus wants for his church and what Jesus is willing to do to make sure that his church is a reflection of him. Okay, I will give to each of you what you deserve. As Lutherans, we should read this, or as Protestants, we should read this and say, well, wait, wait a second. What about grace? Where's grace here? Where is grace? This, this has a very Matthew 25 feel. In Matthew 25, there is the, the judgment of the nations, the, the, the dividing of people, the sheep and goats. You are on this hand, uh, I'm, you know, those on my right hand, those who were kind and generous and helped others, you, are enter, you may enter into the kingdom. And those of you on my left who didn't away with you, depart from me, right? You say, well, where's grace? Where's grace? We, we are saved by grace through faith. That's what Paul says. Saved by, so where is the grace here? Well, we are saved by grace through faith and that faith that is given to us, the Holy Spirit, that faith prompts us to do the right thing. And so uh, we have faith, faith in God who loves us, and our faith is displayed by the things that we do, by the things that we say. It is displayed by our actions. And so we are not saved by our actions, but we are saved by the faith that we have and that faith that, that draws us or put compels us to do the right thing, to do the thing that God would have us do. We are saved by grace through faith. And you know, those who have faith show their faith by the way they live. I mean, that's, that's obvious by what Jesus had to say, that Jesus wanted our faith to be part of the way that we live. Uh, so, Okay, verses 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned uh, what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Okay, I didn't read that very clearly, but here's what Jesus said. Basically, 
if you're not following Jezebel, if you're not doing the things that she, you know, she is compelling others to do, don't worry. I got nothing to say to you. I don't have any burden to lay on top of you. You're doing great. Stay doing great. Hold fast, right? Continue doing what you're doing. Do not stop doing what is good. Do not stop your love and your faith and your service and your patience. Continue. Do not be discouraged by the immorality and idolatry around you. God is still working through you. Hold fast. Keep going. You're doing great. Don't let anything stop you. I'm really proud of you. Go, go, go type. You know, Jesus is proud of him. Just keep going. Hold fast. Hold fast. Keep going. Uh, Verses 26 through 28. Just like every other letter, it ends in a similar way. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give you authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. Even as I also received authority from my father to the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star. And then verse 29, to anyone who has ears, let them hear to what the spirit is saying. So an interesting promise here. All these letters so far, they end with to everyone who overcomes or everyone who conquers, I'm going to do something great for you. Something great is going to happen for you right? And so for here, it's, I will give you authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod. Well, that's interesting. I mean, Jesus promises that you get to rule or reign or work with him or however you want to say it, that the people of God are going to have unique authority over the nations. And we say, what? Is that, is that where this is leading? Is that why we're following? Is that what we believe that, you know, we're in this so that in the end we get to be the, the king or the prince of our own little land? Is that what it's all about? Interesting. The word that we, uh, that was translated as rule and is translated as rule in most definition, uh, most translations, the Greek word actually means to shepherd. It actually means to shepherd. So uh, we think of ruling in in earthly terms, right? We think of rulers in earthly terms like Vladimir Putin, right? Is a ruler. And when he says we're going to war, they go to war. Vladimir Putin has the power to do all of these things, right? Is that the kind of ruling that we're going to do? Are we going to rule like, or, or are we going to be shepherding the people of God? You can see the people of God in the world today, working as shepherds, trying to shepherd the world, trying to shepherd people, shepherding is much different than commanding, right? And when we, when I think of a shepherd in, in a national political sense, I think of someone like Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who, who shepherded the people of South Africa through, uh, with, with other leaders like Nelson Mandela, shepherd them through uh, uh, apartheid and the ways in which uh, radical forgiveness was shown and the ways in which the people, the people who then who were on the bottom now had equality and they choose they chose in their equality not to take revenge right on those who who put who put them down and kept them down right that was a shepherding ministry um that 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 the mandela and desmond tutu did and so you know we have the authority to shepherd right if you if you conquer and continue and hold fast and continue in love and faith uh and um, service and patience, right? But but so it's so hard for us to think that God is going to put us in a place of authority because our understanding of a place of authority does not usually start with love and faith, right? It starts with personal gratification, 
right? Personal enrichment. But that's never that's never the, the way of the kingdom. That's never the way of Jesus. And so if we think about the ways in which Jesus has given us authority, it's authority to shepherd using love and faith and service and patience, which is a different way of thinking about ruling, right? Uh, and so that is the ways in which Jesus offers. If you'd like to rule, if you'd like to shepherd, you can start now with love and with faith and with service and with patience. And then he says, verse 28, even as I also received authority from my father to the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star, the morning star. And as we learn later in Revelation, by the time we get there, we will, uh, Revelation 22, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get there, but we will get there one day. We find out that Jesus himself is the morning star. So we are grateful to have the gift of the morning star, the gift of Jesus. Uh, And we will end there. So let's close with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord God, help us to love, help us to be faithful, help us to serve, help us to be patient. Uh, When there are those who would try and lead us astray, help us to, uh, to see through their deception and to hold them accountable. Uh, We thank you for the gift of yourself, for the gift of the morning star, for the ways in which you lead us and love us, for the ways in which you show us grace and help us to show that grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. Take good care of yourselves. Stay warm, and we will see you next week as we go into Revelation chapter 3.